First and foremost, I want to just give you the main point right up front. Going about God's work our way complicates matters. Doing things, uh, the things of God in the ways of man shows us that we just have impatient hearts. Look here in the first six verses. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And so we have a wife who is barren and a maidservant from Egypt. Probably picked up in back in 12, at the end of 12, where Abram goes down to Egypt. In the time of the famine, he probably picked more than just Hagar up, but he picked a whole group with him that came back. And this is one of those persons. And Sarah gives a right assessment. Verse two, Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my maidservant that it may be that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so Sarai who would later become Sarah, gives a right assessment of the situation. I'm without child. And she had just heard that we're, there's this covenant and someone's coming from our, our uh, body, so to speak. But she goes about it with the wrong solution due to her impatience. She's not getting any younger. God's taking a little longer. And this is a common practice. In that time, it's a common practice that a, a servant could go and help bear children for the family. It was a social custom. You see that in verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. It was a common practice of the day. People of the world would have looked at it and said, no big deal. But verse 4 shows us Abraham's failure to lead the family in his passivity. It says, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and she saw that she had conceived, and she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And so Abram and Hagar come together, and they, that Hagar gets pregnant, and then Hagar kind of gets an attitude and looks down on Sarai. And so if... Sarai's sin was the sin of, like Eve, she was impatient with what God had promised and went after it herself. So Abram's sin is like the sin of Adam. He's passive. What Abram should have done is said, no, sweetie, you remember that God said, he he called me out of Ur of the Chaldees and he said he was going to be uh, blessing the world through us, our family, and that we would be a blessing to the nations. And, and not only that, but it, he's such a gracious God that he gave us a picture of, of the dust of the earth. And if we could number it, that's what our offspring would be. And he gave us the, the stars of the heavens. And he said, if we could even number them, that's what our offspring would be. And, and, and sweetie, he even gave us a covenant, right? He, he, he gave us this promise that, that he initiated and he ratified and and he's God and he's going to keep to his word and no, we're not going to do this. But verse 6 says, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Abram could have said, That was just wrong. You're right. I should not have done that. I should have trusted God's word, gone with God's word, even though I'm in an unplanned place 
at an unplanned pace. But verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, <laughs> your servant is in your power. Do, it to, do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And so again, the sin of Adam there, Hey, it's not me, it's, it's the woman that you gave me. Obviously, if, you, if, if this problem here, just take care of it. I'm, I'm kind of like Pilate to come. I'm washing my hands clean of this situation. You see, an impatient wife and a patient husband leave to a prideful servant in a messy situation. But what we'll see in 7 through 14 is that God brings good of all that is bad. In fact, the second part of this is that God hears our heartache and he sees our situations and he calls us to trust him in them. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. First and foremost, Hagar is going home. She's heading back home. That's why that's given in that verse, that geographical description. She's heading back towards Egypt. Wants nothing to do with Abram and Sarai. But you see that the gracious God seeks the distressed. The distressed weren't seeking God, but God seeks the distressed. And he comes to her in verse 8 and he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Sounds like somebody else I know who counsels. Where God said, where are you? Who told you you were naked? And so God seeks the distress. God comes to Hagar and he says, where are you going? And she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. She's honest. And so not only does God seek the distressed, he, he counsels the distressed. He's concerned with the distressed. And then in 9, it says he gives them instruction. The angel of the Lord, which here I think because of the, of the names that Hagar will give here, I think it's a, it's a manifestation of God. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And so he gives instruction. God seeks the distressed. God is concerned with the distressed. And God gives instruction. Return and submit. Return and submit. And we'll see she does that. But before, he's going to even give her a blessing. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you, you are pregnant and you will bear a son and you shall name his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And so God seeks the distressed. God is concerned for the distressed. God gives the distressed instruction and he also gives them blessing. And if you know this and if you know the story of Genesis and we'll find this out, Ishmael is not of the covenant people. That God even gives blessing on his non-covenant people. It's called common grace. And God says, you shall name his name Ishmael. God hears. And so God hears our heartaches. And he gives a prediction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. It's probably, you know, when Lauren and Luke and Lawson were born and those from the church came to see us, I'm sure glad that that wasn't the blessing that they they gave. He'll be a wild donkey of a man, 
God even predicts the future of this wild leader. His hand shall be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. And so what we see right now in the Middle East gets its origin right here. Now, that you would hear some arguments that, that Hagar was the legitimate wife of Abram, and that's just not true because the language used all throughout this passage is my servant, my servant, my servant, my servant. So God wants you to know whose wife is Abram's, but he shows us and we see it now. There is turmoil in the Middle East, and it started right here out of impatience. But Hagar hears this blessing, and so she calls the name of the Lord in verse 13, who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. God not only hears our heartaches, he sees our situations. Praise God. And therefore, the well was called, where she said, truly, in verse 15, for she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me, and therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, or as my note says here, the well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And so in spite of the fact that she might encounter more opposition by going home and further mistreatment, she goes and she submits. She listens to God's word and she submits to God's instruction. And then there's a beautiful end to this impatient story. Abram listens. Sometimes he's a knucklehead, stiff-necked, but, but look at verse 15 and 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son, right? And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram wasn't there when Hagar got the instruction. He wasn't there. She had fled. She now returns. So the idea behind that is Hagar comes home. She says, this is what's happened to me in the wilderness. And the God that you worship, the God that's called you out of Ur, the Chaldees, the one that you uh, were fleeing from. And she wouldn't have quoted Genesis 12. It hadn't been written at that time, but you get the point. She said, I will bear a son and we're to name him Ishmael. And look who names him. It's, it's Abram. It's not Hagar. And so when we go about God's work, God's way, and trust him, he will use you to achieve what he has promised. If the first part of this text, 1 through 6, deals with the unfaithfulness of sinful humanity, 7 through 14 deals with the faithfulness of a sovereign deity, this last part is you can now see the faithfulness in a repentant humanity. And then verse 16 is a bridge that Abraham served, uh, was 86 years old when Hagar was born to Ishmael to Abram. That serves as a bridge to the next chapter we'll see next week, that he had to do some parenting before he could carry on with the promises. And so if you and I believe, and I'm, a, I'm the big sovereignty of God guy, right? Talk about it all the time. If we really believe God is sovereign and good, then we wouldn't be impatient. So when I tell you up front that I'm impatient, then I must not believe what I'm preaching, right? We, we, we wouldn't see detours as dead ends. In fact, during this week, I go to a mentor of mine, 
though I've only met him once in all his books, Dr. John Piper knows how to speak truth into my soul from the word. And in his book here, The Purifying Power of Living by Faith in Future Grace, he talks about anxiety, pride, misplaced shame, impatience, bitterness, depression, lust. And he shows us from the Bible some things about impatience. And I just want to read them to you. I have them highlighted here because they helped me. Right? If we really believe God is good, as we were taught in Sunday school this morning, and He is great, He's got everything in control, and He's working it out, then we wouldn't be impatient. Right? Right? Do we believe that? If we believe God is sovereign and God is good, then we would not be impatient. And I share that with you. Because I'm an, I'm an impatient man. I'll just tell you that. And I'll tell you this right now. C.J. Mahaney, one of my favorite pastors, wrote a book called Humility. And he said the greatest sentence there that you can take whatever sin you're struggling with and just insert it. He said, I am a proud man pursuing humility by God's grace. Thank you, C.J. I'm just going to put in there, I am an impatient man pursuing patience by God's grace. You could put in there, I am a blank person pursuing the opposite of that what the Spirit would do by God's grace. So it hit me this week when I'm reading this where Dr. Piper says, being in God's place at God's pace by future grace, his very first sentence that he says of this chapter is, impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt God's wis- the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. Sure, we can speak a lot about God's sovereignty, but if we really believe it, we wouldn't be impatient. It springs up in our hearts when our plans are interrupted or shattered. It may be prompted by a long wait in a checkout line. Ever been there? Or a sudden blow that knocks out half our dreams. So let me just stop right there. This is, this is uh, something I want. It's a sermon within a sermon, but I think it needs to be said. Um, you notice what he said there? Long checkout lines and shattered dreams. There are believers who tend to think sin is only the biggies in life. And Dr. Piper rightly shows us it's checkout lines. It's, it's traffic jams. It's things, long lists of things that are left undone. That, that God says there are sin in those things. But that's another sermon for another day. He just says it shows up in your life in the little things. It shows up in my life in the little things and in the big things. But impatience shows up in the little things. He goes on to say patience. So he doesn't just tell you the problems. He gives you hope. He says, patience is the capacity to wait and endure without murmuring and disillusionment and to wait in an unplanned pace and to endure with an unplanned pace. And he gives you the, the hope to get through it. He says, the inner strength of patience comes by the power of the Holy Spirit in faith and future grace. And he says, strength is the right word. 
Patience is the evidence of an inner strength. Impatient people are weak and therefore dependent on external supports like schedules that go just right and circumstances that support their fragile hearts. Their outburst of oaths and threats and harsh criticisms of the culprits who cross their plans don't sound weak, but that noise is all camouflage of weakness. And patience demands tremendous inner strength. In other words, the strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good. And that delays do not mean uh, that delays are not dead ends and there are detours in our life. I highlighted that because that speaks right to my heart. When delays and detours and frustrations and opposition ruin our plans and bode ill for us, faith and future grace lays hold of a sovereign purpose of God to bring something magnificent to pass. And that is the key to patience. And he says, the faithful, the path of faithful patience is not a straight line. And he gives you an example of Joseph. Joseph. You remember Joseph? Right? He's loved by his father, hated by his brothers, left for dead, picked up, sold into slavery. He goes and he starts prospering, but then he's wrongly accused and he goes into prison. And for two years, two full years, he waits. Tells the exact dreams that the cupbearer will be restored and the baker will be killed. And for two years, he waits. And then in an afternoon, in the time it needs for him to shave his beard, he comes and he's exalted to the right spot at the right time to be the savior of the known world at that time. He's patient. And it shows us that God ordains setbacks for a season for a reason. That the remnant of Israel, they come back and they're trying to build the foundations for the temple and there's setback. And you see in the book of Ezra, they come back and they start to build, but then they stop. It's because God wanted the rest of that to be paid for by the people who had originally kicked them out. God has a sense of humor. He's funny. Makes you want to laugh sometimes when you read the Bible, right? Hang him, hang Haman being hung on his own gallows. I mean, you're supposed to read that and just, it's not to be this stoic thing. You're supposed to read that and go, that God, he's funny. And so in spite of weakness and unbelief, you know, you you hesitate. Do you share this? Yeah, you share it with great joy because that sin, because that's what it is. And let's just start calling things in our own life sin. Let's not try to try to get it and kind of massage it. Well, this isn't sin. Let's just call it what it is. Because when you do and you call it sin and say you're impatient, right? Because I could go down the list in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous chapter. For me, it's the first one. Love is patient. Love is kind. So if you're not patient, you are unloving and that is sinful. You could go through the whole list. Put your name in there. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's just call it what it is. When we're impatient and unkind and rude and arrogant, it's sin. And when you do that, it's freeing. It's freeing. You can say, okay, I am that, and I, want, I don't want to be that. And yeah, I know the solution is not just more pull up your bootstraps and let's go get it. It's God help me, and God thank you for cleansing me of that sin so I can sing that song, heal my heart and make it clean, because I want it to happen, and I, I think it has happened at the cross. And so what are some truths we can learn about Sarah or Sarai and Abram and Hagar? And they're great and gracious God. Number one, on the back of your handout, it's God works on his own timetable. We, we as believers, we as his creation tend to forget his promises. In chapter 12, Abram got the call and then he fled to Egypt. Here he gets the covenant at 15 and then this incident in 16. But God has a different thing in mind. And Abram should have led, it, led his wife. He should have. He, he, like Adam, should have led Eve. Abram should have led Sarai. Abram should have led his wife. Much like Job did in Job 2 when, when these plagues came upon Job and Job's wife said, Oh, just curse God and die. He says, she says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak foolishly. Should we receive good from God and not receive evil? And it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so Job led his wife well. Adam did not. Abram did not. Men, we need to lead well in these situations. And we also need to know that there's consequences for our actions. There's discord in the family. We see it here, Sarai and Abram and, and uh, Hagar. And there's destruction in the society. That if you, if you take a step back and you look at what's going on in the Middle East, it's because of what happened in 16. This wild donkey of a man has grown into a nation of people who are wild and literally against everyone. God's on his own timetable and God sees our situations and hears our heartaches. He's in control of everything. Absolute control. That's why you can I can read that chapter in the conviction and the comfort that it brings from Dr. Piper. Yeah, he's sovereign and he's in control. I just need to wait on him. And that he, he gives common grace to those people who don't even deserve it. Matthew 5 says he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And he's sovereign over cultural conflict. We saw it back in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. That was the doing of God. The reason there are languages is because God did it. He made them babble. And so our prayers for the Muslims and that Islamic nation should include a change of heart. That they would go back and do what Hagar did and submit to God's true word. And so what? how do we take these truths about God who works on his own timetable, yet he sees our situation, he hears our heartache, he hears our cries, he hears our pleas. What should we do? The rest of that handout is just a 
something I put together as a conviction of my own soul of how can I learn in my own life to wait on God and first and foremost, go about God's work God's way, knowing that he sovereignly sees our situations and he hears our cries from help. And that when we find ourselves in an unplanned place at an unplanned pace, we are to learn to actively wait on God. In Psalm 27, I'm just going to read these for you. You can just be showered with the scriptures. The psalmist says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And so we should wait faithfully and we should wait courageously. Psalm 41 says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my feet secure. He put a new song in my mouth and a new song of praise of my God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That we wait patiently and we wait prayerfully for God's glory. And this is the one that has resonated in my soul this week. Uh, These next verses, Isaiah 40 and especially 64.4. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no mighty increases strengths. Even you shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And Isaiah 64, 4 is a huge one. For no eye has heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who works for those who wait on him. I'm done. I'm ready to see God go to work in my own heart and in my own soul. Take, take it, Lord. And so we wait repentantly and we wait confidently. But how do we do that? Luke 2, 25 and 38. Now what, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him and all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So there was Simeon, and there was this prophetess. And when Jesus had returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were waiting for him. And so in our waiting, we aren't just sitting here twiddling our thumbs. What you doing? Just waiting. You going to do anything today? No, just going to wait. No. We wait righteously and devoted. We wait loyally. We wait thankfully and expectantly. In 1 Thessalonians 9, 1, or 9 and 10, what a great couple of verses. For they themselves report to us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols and how you wait for his son from heaven. And so we wait actively. We are always, there's not just one time in your life where you turn to God and that's it. We are always turning to God from idols. Every single person in this room has idols in their heart and you're either actively turning from them and turning towards God or you're sitting there and just nursing them. 
just like some of us like to nurse impatience. And so we wait actively, we wait eagerly. So to have patience doesn't mean we just sit, but it means we sit with a confidence and we act with a reverence, knowing no eye has seen, no ears heard a God like you who works for those who wait on him. And I, I can see this too in my own life and how it can filter down because if you were to look at my precious children, they're joyful children. They are. It's because we're a joyful family. But if you were to also look at them, they can be impatient, can't they? You know why? Because their daddy's impatient. And so it can simmer down, filter down. And so that's what we're going to work on, isn't it, sweetie? Father, as I work on this in my own heart, might you be exalted and glorified. And I thank you for Isaiah 64, 4. No one has ever seen, no one has ever heard. Many have, are blind and many are deaf. But to those of us who read your word, we have seen that there is a God like you. And you go to work for us who wait repentantly, wait faithfully, wait confidently, and wait actively. Help us this week, Lord. Because your word says no temptation has overtaken anyone, but such as is common to man, to everyone. And so I pray for my brothers or sisters who might be impatient. I pray for those who are in our congregation who this is a deed they've put to death or it's something that the Lord just, that you haven't had given a struggle for them. I pray that they would pray for us. And those of us who are impatient, we'd get with our spouses or with our children and just confess our sins, rejoice in the fact that that consolation of Israel, that one name, Jesus Christ, died for those very sins upon the cross. We thank you and praise you because we live freely and empowered knowing we've been cleansed from our sin by your son. It's in his name I pray. Amen.